So welcome everybody to Brain Food Live on Air, bringing it to you every Friday, no fail. Um, and it is going to be great to have this conversation with you. Um, we have reset this at a new time because I wanted to dive deep in some of the amazing research that our friends at Checker have done on the state of background checking compliance in the United States. Uh, so hence, we've moved this to US uh, time. Don't worry if you're used to watching this um, at uh, GMT time, because this will be recorded and it will be available for all after the show, immediately after we stop broadcasting. Um, so uh, welcome everybody to the show. Um, just want to uh, let everyone know that we are broadcasting this on Crowdcast, of course, as usual. Um, we're also live streaming this, hopefully from my own LinkedIn um, and also from Twitter, Facebook and all other places as well. So welcome everybody who's watching it on those places. Um, my pleasure to welcome um, Suhan Wang to the show. Uh, Suhan, I wonder whether you could quickly introduce yourself. Who are you and what it is you do? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Hung, for having me. Uh, I'm Suhan Wang. I'm Litigation and Compliance Counsel at Checker. We're a background company. We provide background check and related hiring services. And at the company, I manage our litigation, help the company innovate in a compliant and mission forward way. And I help customers and prospects understand the pretty confusing landscape that is background checks. Yeah, and confusion was the first thing that came out to me when I read that report, um, mm -hmm. because it, it's not only a changing and dynamic landscape, but there's multiple layers where the thing changes. Um, so, of course, you've got federal um, directives, you've got sort of those things that people have got, got to be compliant with. But, of course, you then have state-level compliance and then you even have, it seems to be city level compliance also. So if you're a business, I would say, I mean, if you're a simple business in one location, in one city, then you've still got to handle those three tiers. But I wonder what it's going to be like if you have a distributed office, let's say, or if you have multiple people in different states, that's got to be hella confusing. Um, I mean, sort of in that situation, it, one, of the, one of the key things that emerged from the, the report was that actually a lot of companies did not feel particularly confident that they were compliant on all of this. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about sort of what um, sort of that um, uh, result? Um, was that surprising to you uh, when you, when you received it or did you think, you know what, companies haven't got much of a chance to really get this way. It's too much. There are some areas where I wasn't surprised and some other areas that I was. Um, before I dive into the report, just have to give an obligatory lawyer disclaimer that what I'll be talking about today is for education and informational purposes only. It is not legal advice. Always recommend you consult with your own legal counsel for your own compliance needs. So, so that said, you know, the really interesting thing we did the report is we polled about a thousand American workers. These are not checker customers. So these are non-checker respondents to really understand you know, what is their understanding of background check compliance and what are their pain points? The Some of the areas that really stood out is there was a question about, you know, certain aspects of compliance with how you use your background check. For example, there's something called adverse action. What that means is when you review a background check and you take negative action on that as a result of the information in the report. And the negative action could be not hiring someone, not promoting someone, or not retaining it. So negative action is defined really broadly. This The law that requires this is a federal law. So this applies to everyone. This isn't one of those state, city, local laws we're talking about. The federal law that's uh, relevant here called the Fair Credit Reporting Act says that if you use a background check in the employment process and you take this negative action, you have to follow this multiple step adverse action process. You first let the candidate know that you may not move forward with them, what conviction record led to you know, impacting your decision, give them a copy of the report, and there's a waiting period. I think a lot of companies are surprised by this waiting period. People wanna make a really fast decision, but the FCRA does require companies to give candidates a reasonable waiting period. It usually is interpreted to be about a week or five business days. And this allows the candidate to, one, see what is on the report that's impacting them. And they can either give you evidence of rehabilitation or context about what happened, or if the information is inaccurate, if that doesn't information doesn't actually belong to them, then they have the opportunity and the right to dispute that information with the background check company. That waiting period is really important to protect the candidate and to make sure that they're being given the chance to tell their story. 
And then if after this process, you still can't move forward with them, then you send them the final notice. So pretty key component of the, the FCRA framework uh, for governing background checks and how they're used, and really important in terms of protecting the candidate experience. What was surprising to me uh, about our survey results is that of that, I think it was about 70% of the respondents said that they, they're not sure if they're always following the adverse action process every time when they're taking this negative action. And, and that did stand out to me because that is something that is an important part of keeping candidates informed and giving them the rights that they're afforded under the FCRA. Why do you think that they're not certain they're doing it? Um, is it because there isn't a, an automatic trigger sort of in place for this for this to, to, to happen? I mean, is it still a manual situation where a report emerges and then someone like a local hiring manager, HR person makes a decision and then it's I guess it's up to them to then file something to get it to the candidate. And, and of course, that's going to lead to a drop off. So do, do you, is that the interpretation as to why people aren't certain there's basically not an automated trigger? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. My guess would be part of it is just education, right? Is people not understanding that when you use a background check that you do for employment purposes, that you do have to follow these steps, right? This is an area where lots of people hear about background checks, you talk about running them, but there may not be the education out there that like, hey, if you are using this, then there is this law that you fall under and that there are steps required as part of that. So I think one is just simple education knowledge. And the second, to your point, is 100% the manual labor involved. There is no, depending on how you are ordering background checks, who your background check provider is, there is no automatic step. So for some companies, maybe that it's really manual. I look at a report, I, I see a record that might disqualify someone. I have to write the letter. I have to attach the report and other required disclosures. And then I have to email that candidate. So that certainly is a much more manual process. If you work with a background check provider that gives you tools, this process can be streamlined. So Checker offers an adverse action tool for our customers to make that process a lot faster. So it takes out a lot of the manual labor, but it does require training your teams to know that if you are going to take negative action, you have to follow these steps. You have to wait for this waiting period and then make sure the final notice is sent out. Um, this may not be a comfortable question for you to answer, Suhan, so feel free not to speculate if you're not comfortable with it. But I'm just immediately thinking, okay, um, uh, there's got to be a large percentage of companies that will just say, you know what, maybe we can just say no to the candidate without disclosing at all um, and just move on. Uh, like the simplest way, we're not talking about whether it's ethically approved, we're not recommending companies do this, but we can understand perhaps um, that a, a company that doesn't have the resource or capacity just says, you know what, we're going to go just go to candidate B, we just think they're better. And they, they kind of report that they, they prefer this candidate rather than uh, candidate A, uh, just to avoid this admin uh, 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 overhead. Do you, do you think that's a prominent thing? I mean, um, uh, that happens um, just to, you know, uh, as a dodge really from, from how companies deal with this? It's certainly possible, right? There's, it's a big world out there. There's a lot of different companies. Everyone takes on different levels of risk. One thing to keep in mind though, is that there are a lot of ban the box laws in the US and it's certainly a, a growing phenomenon. And one of the things that ban the box laws do is they impact when in the hiring process you can order a background check. So in the past, people would ask upfront or maybe they order the background check upfront. Now, depending on what the law is and if it applies to you, you may have to wait until after a conditional offer is made, after the interview. So it may not be so easy to just say, well, I have 10 people because how many, have you given conditional offers to all 10 of these people? You know, maybe not. And so there are other laws in play to keep in mind that will impact, you know, when you are looking at the check, how you are using it. And certainly if a company chooses to not follow their compliance obligation. That's a, a choice they can make, but there are, of course, you know, there can be consequences to that, whether it's private litigation, that's when, you know, an individual person sues you, whether it's a class action, if this is your company-wide policy to never follow these laws, or you can get regulatory attention from state agencies, from the federal government who will come in and audit your books and investigate and force you to pay a fine and implement all these procedures. So there, there can be consequences to 
these type of decisions that go beyond just monetary fines because it can impact your operations if you end up being asked to change things or allow a government agency to audit your books, so to speak. And in fact, the fear of the consequences seems to be quite a prominence. So people aren't aware of the consequences. One of the, again, one of the research findings was that people um, were not confident um, that they were doing everything that they should. Um, but the number one concern that they had was that they were they would be falling out of compliance. So they were aware that this is an issue. So it's, it's not really an ignorance issue at all. It's more a case of, you know what, we probably are not handling this too well. Um, by the way, folks, if you don't know what Ban the Box is, I mean, it's, it's basically um, a, uh, a, I guess historically it used to be a checker that, that candidates had to, uh, that you'd furnish on an application form to say, have you ever been convicted of or have you ever been in, just as impacted? Um, mm -hmm. And you check the box. And I guess once upon a time, there might have been a blanket policy by certain employers to say, you know what, anybody puts a tick in this, we can just like remove them from, like just filter them out from the system. Yep. Um, and uh, the idea behind uh, banning that checkbox is to say we shouldn't be using that filter. Um, by the way, I think this is generally um, a, a global movement. You know, I think we, we are uh, understanding that, you know, people who have encountered the law in, in different ways uh, shouldn't shouldn't at all mean that they should be eliminated from uh, participating in the, uh, the economy in any way. And in fact, that's the worst thing you can do in society to really block people off from this path. Um, and there's, there's lots of local kind of efforts, I think, in a global level to try and improve this. And it's great to see this happening in the US as well. However, um, you mentioned this is on a state by state level, right? So ban the box is state by state. Therefore, um, well, like what happens when you have a company that has employees or job roles in multiple states? I presume that essentially they have to apply a, 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 a different um, policy in different states. Is that correct? That, that that can be the approach, right? You could take a specific state by state and there also could be city requirements depending what city you're in and so you could have a state by state analysis now i will say some of the state beyond the box laws will only apply to public agencies so it might not apply to every company um, a lot of them also have rules that say it only applies if you're a company of a, of a certain size like 10 people 50 people it, it again varies depending on the specific regulation so one approach can be to really have the specific customization of every district and only complying with that specific rule right you can do it that way it is pretty operationally burdensome um, it takes a lot of work to track you know other approaches people have taken is you just pick the most candidate friendly rule and you apply that for everyone, right? That from an implementation perspective, from a tracking perspective, it's much easier to remember one rule that applies to everybody. But maybe that doesn't really work for your business because you want to be able to have more efficient processes in certain places than others. Another hybrid or middle, middle approach for that is you can categorize, maybe you have the states that don't have any ban the box laws that apply to you and they all get one approach and one policy. And then you have all the states that do have varying ones. And out of that one, you pick the most conservative one and or the most restrictive one, however you want to think about it. And in that bucket where these laws exist, you treat all the candidates who live or work in those places with that type of policy. So you will have a couple different policies, but maybe you only have two or three instead of you know, 30 different policies, so to speak. Yeah, I think so. I mean, companies need to think of it from um, kind of what the the, the the operational overhead is all of this. And, and as you say, um, uh, going to the, the 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 sort of the most candidate friendly approach is going to be more operationally simple. I think it's part of the uh, part of the, the general sense that this will move into a more progressive direction um, because it makes sense operationally to do so. Um, uh, but do, do you see there any sort of compliance, um, sort of any sort of coordination, if you like, between states that might help simplify this for, for, for the businesses? Or do you think, you know what, that's not going to happen? Um, it, <laughs> I won't say never, but it can be challenging to get 50 states in the U.S. to agree on one thing. Um, sometimes there will be a lot of overlap. Some states will model theirs on other states. So there will be similar versions across multiple areas, but at least right now there isn't a 
a federal ban the box law that applies to all private companies. So for now, it is still a little bit piecemeal. I would expect that as our ban the box laws become more mature, there'll probably be some alignment, but that may be, you know, not in the next year or so, maybe in the next five to 10 years. Um, you know, yeah. Hung, I saw a question in um, the chat about, you know, what PII is necessary for the background checks. I'm glad, thank you for raising this. Uh, you do need to collect PII, that's personally identifying information about a candidate before you can order a background check. Part of that is, and one of the requirements before you can order a background check, and this is set forth in the FCRA, is that you do have to provide a proper disclosure and gather authorization from a candidate to run the check. So that is another compliance area that is a, it's a pretty black and white type of requirement. You are supposed to <laughs> gather consent and provide the required disclosures before you order anything. And that's another, um, I, mean, I think in our survey response, there was a higher level of confidence in respondents in terms of what whether they thought they were complying with that. I think only 15 or 16% said they weren't sure if the proper disclosures and authorizations were being collected. So that's that's good because we don't want people to be surprised when a background check is run on them, right? I wouldn't want to be surprised. And so if you are ordering background checks, make sure that you or you know if you're using your provider to send your forms, that's that's another option too. But just make sure that if, if the report is for you, that you are making sure that the candidates are getting the information they're required and that you're getting their consent before you actually order this check on them. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and I have to ask, beg another question, Suhan. Um, do, you, do you, in that report, was there any information to indicate what would happen in, in the light of the lack of consent being given? Um, I mean, I, I guess a company's position on that might be, look, you have to give consent for us to be able to progress. And, you know, pre presumably if the consent isn't given for whatever reason, then that's due cause for, for you to, you know, step away from that candidate and then move move, move on. So I guess that's the, the way to handle that situation rather than, you know, constantly renegotiating with the candidate as to whether it's okay or not to get the check. Yeah. And it's the, the consent piece really, it's, it's a requirement, right? You can't order a background check unless you have consent. And so if, if the background check is part of your hiring process, then someone will have to give consent to be able to get the background check. And whether or not a company chooses to make exceptions, right, that is up to the company to decide. But certainly from a background check company's perspective, you know, our expectation is that if our customers are ordering a report and our customers you know, certify to us, they tell us, like they reassure us that they are gathering these proper consents before they collect and give us PII, um, that that is a key component of the process. Yeah, excellent. Uh, one of the really interesting parts of the report was the, the what you did to segment sort of things on company size. And I just, you know, just reading through and just speaking with you uh, just now, Suhan, it's like, you know what, this is going to be really tough on certain companies that just simply don't have the resourcing mm -hmm. to, to do all of this work. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about sort of how different segments reported um, their level of comfort with the responsibilities that they had? Yeah, uh, unsurprisingly, the small business respondents were the least confident that their policies complied with federal, state, and local laws. I think our number is 55% lacked confidence. And the reason it's not surprising is because of everything we've been talking about, right, it is can be really complicated. If you operate in multiple jurisdictions and multiple states, multiple cities, it is a lot of information to keep in track. As for a small company, you're unlikely to have dedicated headcount to be tracking these or resolving these. And maybe maybe you had someone check it years ago and you're not sure where it stands now. And that's unsurprising that this is small businesses that feel the least confident because they have the least resources to really address and deal with it. This is one of the reasons why for small companies, right, taking that candidate-friendly approach across the board may be a good choice from an operational perspective because you don't have the resources to be changing it all the time and to track 30 different policies. So maybe for a small business, the, the most manageable method is to pick the candidate-friendly approach and apply that to everyone. And the segmentation, by the way, folks, a small business was defined as anybody of a thousand employees and under. Um, and uh, and that's worth you bearing in mind. A question in terms of when the, the compliance laws actually 
apply with regards to company size? Does it apply to every size of company from zero to a thousand, or does it kind of kick in at a certain uh, a sort of size of headcount? Um, I just wondered whether certain companies might, you know, take the stereotypically European approach, which is okay. We're just simply going to always hire. <laughs> we're going to keep small enough so we're never going to be uh, have to deal with the extra compliance. For the federal law, the FCRA, the one that really is the key framework for background checks, doesn't matter how big you are. Wow. If you are a company, <laughs> if you're going to use a background check for employment purposes, you have to follow the procedures under the FCRA. Company size will matter when it comes to some of the ban the box, the local ordinances. Mm -hmm. That's where we'll see company size brought in. But for the, I would say like the big picture framework of how you order a check, when you can order it, those will apply to you regardless of whether you're one person or I guess two people if you're hiring someone or you're 2,000 people. Yeah, very interesting. And, and obviously companies that have a distributed workforce, I'm just thinking again, like remote workers, um, what's, the, what's the angle there? But presumably a remote worker is going to have to register their, uh, their location in order to pay uh, the right taxes and so on. Um, so this really seems to me to be more complicated for a distributed workforce um, than one that is like concentrated in one city in office. Um, is, is that sort of a, an accurate way of uh, describing the situation? 100%. And to, to, as an example of the granularity that can happen in the, ban, in the, in the fair hiring type laws, ban the box laws, the city of Los Angeles has a very specific law. It's called the Los City of Los Angeles Fair Chance Initiative for Hiring Ordinance. It takes some of the requirements of how you analyze and use a background check and has more strict requirements than most places. It requires you to write down the reasons why a record might be disqualifying. It requires you to give that information in writing to the candidate. This applies in the city of Los Angeles, not in the county of Los Angeles. And so there really can be granularity even within an area that seems like it's one overall metropolitan area, actually it's the city, whether your zip code is within the city matters as to whether or not that law applies uh, to, to a company or not. There are some yes. overarching principles though that companies can, can implement. One area that is a, a growing part of the ban the box fair chance hiring laws is how you evaluate a background check. There is this concept called individualized assessment, where you look at the specific record, you look at the job the person is hiring for, and you examine whether or not that conviction record is related to the job, if it's related to the risk or the community that your worker will be involved in. This concept of individualized assessment, it is, is a growing concept. And so one way to make things a little bit easier for you is if you are generally adopting this approach, regardless of where you are, then if you're in the jurisdictions where you are required to that, do that, that's already part of your process. And if a new state adds that requirement, then if you're already doing it, there's nothing more you need to do um, unless there's some documentation requirements. But if you already have the basic framework, then you're already in a good place to adapt as the laws change and grow. Yeah, and folks, for, for uh, what Suhan's talking about here is that if there does something does emerge, you've done a background check, and it does emerge in some way that okay, we need to look at this. Um, uh, one of the procedures that you can employ is basically to individually look at that case rather than have a black or white yes no type of situation. Um, and you would examine. I think there's a quite a nice formula there, isn't it? You got to mm -hmm. exam examine the nature of the. Uh, the offense uh, like is it actually relevant to the job function sometimes it isn't you know you do something on this domain actually it's totally unrelated to the work that you're doing then you know you can say we can we can we can kind of understand the risk of this having being a problem is very low um the time uh, uh, the distance between that offense and, and today so you know we we kind of want to say um this wasn't a recent behavior this is this is you know people can change mm -hmm. obviously we all do um and and finally there's a component on is there a severity component or something like this where it's about you know what, what the impact of that original offense might be you know if it was i wouldn't say trivial we don't trivialize uh, crimes in any way but we, we might understand that you know certain crimes uh, get put on to your record but uh you know uh, the overall impact is is 
you can argue the case that is potentially not uh, significant. Uh, is is that correct? Have I got that right, Suhan? Yeah. So so the the test is often called the nature time nature test, and so yes. the severity conversation is often part of the nature of what was the nature of the prior conviction. Then you look at the time that's elapsed since the conviction occurred. Was it last year or was it ten years ago? And then the look, you look at the nature of the job and the responsibilities that someone will be performing and see how the conviction ties back into that. So one example is if you're hiring somebody for a driving-related position, then driving-related convictions will likely be much more relevant to that role than non-driving ones. But if you're hiring for something that is a, a warehouse stocking one, has nothing to do with driving or nothing to do with the public, then different types of records may or may not be relevant to you. If someone's handling sensitive financial information, then the type of records that might be relevant are probably things related to, you know, financial handling, embezzlement, you know, theft of information. Like those will be more relevant to someone who's handling sensitive personal information than maybe somebody who's just, you know, stocking boxes in a back room somewhere. Yeah, really interesting comment here by Alison. And I think the answer's got to be yes, right? So we're talking about Again, the dynamism is one of the tricky parts of being compliant. Um, and not only is the law dynamic, as, as we kind of understand, but also people are dynamic. So in other words, you're screening for one function here. And as we say, we apply the nature as sort of uh, a time uh, 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 formula. Maybe we pass this person based on, on the job that they're applying for, but obviously they may transition to another job. I mean, what's the what's the general guidance there? So that we've, we've hired this person, we use the driver example, um, we hire this person for a non-driving job, brilliant uh, sort of employee. She's amazing. She does this, this, and this, three years in, no issues, all-star candidate. She then decides, okay, I actually want to do the driving job within the business. Um, like, what's the, what's, what's the, the policy there? What's the guidance there on, on that scenario, Sam? Yeah. So for the company, it, the company will need to look at what, if there are any laws or regulations that apply to their space. So there are some companies where they are, if they have a driver, working for them, they are obligated to run certain checks on them. You know, so I, I think for the, in the, for the company's perspective, it's really looking at, are these jobs and the responsibilities different? If they move to this other role, are you, is there some rule that requires you to run a, a new type of screening? If there's not a rule required, is that something you want to do from your own trust and safety perspective? So one example could be someone in a non-driving role now is a driving role. Many companies, would probably choose to order a new type of screening, a new background check, because now driving is relevant to that person and their eligibility or fitness for that role. Or if someone is getting promotion and now they're suddenly handling detail information they're not before, then maybe you do run a different type of check. Because one thing that is really important also, I think there can be a, a bit of a confusion or misunderstanding about how background checks works, is that there is no single type of background check. How what it goes into a background check, what information is being searched depends on essentially what you ordered. You know, what searches did you order? How far back did you look? And so if you, I think for companies who are ordering checks, if there are certain types of information you really need for a specific role, make sure you understand that that's actually what you're ordering and that you're getting what you need. Because if you assume that one report works for everybody, that's simply not the case because there's a lot of customization that can go into that. You know, this debate's triggered another thought in my mind, which is, you know, the, the internal mobility aspect. Um, uh, I think most people would assume probably correctly that background checks is obviously uh, primarily used for external hiring. Person comes into the company, the first thing you got to do is it's, it's widely understood that you should do conduct a background check here. Um, but of course, people move within companies. Um, do 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 businesses need to think about sort of how substantive that internal job move is before they apply like how do they know for instance let's say we just have a classic promotion you know it's just the tier one tier two tier three same domain same department whatnot like do we need to apply a background check in that case i would intuitively say no we don't um but how is that sub substantively different from this person who jumps into a different department suddenly um, and then, you know, into a different role, like, is there, is there any guidance there as to how, diff how, how much of a difference the domain mm -hmm. needs to be before we start calling these checks in again? 
Yeah, there's not a set rule because it really depends on that for your company, you know, what is actually new about this role that they're performing. And if you, if you think about it, unless there is a law that requires you as a company to run background checks for certain roles, you can choose not to run it if someone is being promoted within the same department, right? You, there, there are some areas that are very highly regulated and companies have requirements that when they're required to order checks and what types. But, it, but if not, and someone is just being promoted internally, you can choose not to order the check because you think it doesn't, it's not really necessary for your needs. You don't need to add that as part of your process. You know, you have been working with someone, you've had a years of experience or trust with them and they meet all these other requirements of the job. So it's not true that every time someone changes jobs, you have to, it's, is this person's responsibilities, what they're handling, what they're touching, is that substantially different in a way where that changes your risk profile or your concerns about trust and safety in your workplace and what information they have access to. The other thing to think about too is as a company, there can be a difference in how you view, how you use use or the frequency of it, depending on how often you see your workforce, right? If you see your workers every day and you're able to have more of a real-time assessment or see what's going on, you may not feel the need to run another check after the first one. If your workforce is entirely remote and there's very little human contact, then for some companies, they run annual background checks because they have less real-time live insight into that person's you know, performance or because of whatever, whatever responsibilities they're engaging in might be a slightly higher risk profile. You have different trust and safety concerns. And so you'll choose to run annual background checks because that's a policy that makes sense for you. Um, so, so really is no one way to do it. I think that is why it's so hard. I know companies want to be told the one way, but it's, it's so specific to the company because you have to balance the, the benefit of it, the cost of it, the fairness to your employees, you know, is there a, a purpose or what need does this serve before you order it? And only the company itself really knows your business or, you know, what your candidates are doing, what your employees are doing, who they're interacting with and what your own policies and business needs are in this area. Yeah. And by the way, if anyone is like throwing their heads up in there, uh, sort of right now and thinking, how do we deal with this? We're going to end this show with a few kind of how to's and just general guidelines as to how we can get to a point where um, we have an operationally efficient way to stay um, uh, compliant um, in, in in the face of all of this complexity. Um, you know, I didn't realize that there was a remote to, sort of off as a versus office dimension to this. But the more sort of we have this conversation, Suhan, it's, it's clear that actually there is a, an additional kind of component um, uh, that companies need to think about. Um, obviously, you're very familiar with this kind of tension between companies that, you know, either trying to return to office or companies that are, you know, workers in particular are keen to stay remote. Um, but it's going to be more complicated for remotely distributed businesses to stay compliant, particularly as those, I guess those employees might also then move around. I mean, part of the reason why people are keen to stay remote is some degree of geographical mobility. So if they're moving across states, then presumably that may then trigger the need for new checks. Is, is that right? I mean, let's say you're living in a state that has banned the box. Great. Um, then you move to a state that has not banned this. Like, does the company then need to 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 do a check? Would you say? I mean, what's the what's the guidance there? No, I wouldn't say that pure mobility is the trigger. It and I know I'm a broken record, but it comes down to what is that person doing, and are there any other industry regulations that require you to do this? So, if someone's simply moving states, doing the same job as a company, there you may not see any need to order a new check. If they move from a state to, to a new state where suddenly there is a regulator that regulates your business, and this regulator says all of your employees that in this state have to have a certain type of check, then yes, of course, you should comply with your regulator's directives. But there is no requirement that you do it simply because someone moved. It's really looking at, are they doing something different? Are you in a state or a location where you're required to, re or to order a new screen? on that person based on whatever industry you're in. There was a really interesting chart um, on, I think it was page 
let's have a look, page 20. By the way, everyone should check out this report if you haven't already done so. We'll, we'll share the, the link to uh, the download uh, uh, page after the show. Um, but it was, it was uh, basically a pie chart, a donut to describe the compliance responsibilities falling into different parts of the, uh, basically who's responsible for it. Um, and that was really interesting for me to see because we're going to go on to the, sort of the, the, the large company problem in a, in a moment. This is 50% um, of, um, of companies, uh, the responsibility is HR stroke onboarding team, which makes absolute sense. 12% operations team, um, 10% had a dedicated background check team. So this is where companies have, have, have kind of realized that they needed to actually um, create this organization. Here's an interesting one for a lot of folks watching this. 8% was dependent on the recruiting and TA team. Um, now, I, with due respect to recruiters, I think this probably <laughs> you probably don't want the recruiters to be involved in that um, because the recruiter psychology is like, okay, I'm doing the hiring, I'm getting this person through, and everything else is, is extra, extra. And I think they're the, they're going to be the ones that basically are not going to do all of the um, uh, you know, the procedural, uh, uh, the fidelity on the procedural side that can lead to uh, falling out of compliance. Um, large company problems. We've talked about small companies that don't have resources. Large companies do have uh, resources. But then an interesting insight from the report is saying they feel as if they're untrained. Um, what's what's your feeling? Like, can you what's your explanation for that sort of uh, seems kind of like paradoxical? Uh, what's your thought on that? It does seem a little paradoxical. I think sometimes, and this is where and some of the differences between having a big company and processes is sometimes with big companies, you you have your policies in place, you have these big teams, and it's easy to assume everybody has read the policy or is up to date. You know, For a small company, there's more of the face-to-face -face discussions where someone says like, oh, I don't know anything about this. And everyone remembers, maybe we should talk about it again. But in a big company, you have more siloed structures. Typically, everyone has a particular role and a job and they're, and they're doing that job and they're thinking about it. And so unless you have a team that's thinking about, are we continually training and retraining our team on how to order background checks and do this? Or are we assuming everybody understands this policy? That can be an easy reason or area or blind spot to fall into where you're a big company, you have the resources, you have the policies, but you don't actually know if your people understand what the policy means. And this is very important because the people that responded to the survey were actually the workers, weren't they? Um, mm -hmm. so, so the workers were reporting, hey, <laughs> I'm working in the background screening team, but I don't feel as if I've been adequately trained uh, to do all of this. Like they don't feel comfortable. Um, that's really important, folks, because you might already be thinking, yeah, great, background will take care of it. Uh, but you know what? Your background team doesn't feel confident that they know all they need to know. Um, so you need to provide more support there. It's not just a case of thinking it's done because you have a team. Um, very, very interesting. Um, okay, uh, moving on. Um, we're talking about uh, sort of um, changes. A lot of people listening to this might think, you know, well, all this is great. We know about compliance. And by the way, some of the founders I've spoke to have really blasé in some of this attitude as well. So kind of shocking. Um, and they're saying, yeah, laws happen. And this is more on data privacy. Bob, uh, sort of who's in the, in the chat there will know all about this. Um, but essentially they say, yeah, I'm waiting until like a big litigation case happens uh, before yeah. I... I do anything really. Um, we just carry on as usual. Um, so, realistically, what are the what are the risks? I mean, uh, of, of being audited. What are the risks of, of this actually happening? And again, we don't want to promote like non-compliance as, as a thing. Everyone should be compliant. But what is the uh, what is the risk uh, sort of uh, for a company to be caught like this? And what is the vir virulence sort of say if they uh, were subject to uh, uh, being found to be out of compliance? Well, the U.S. is a very litigious country and the barrier to filing a lawsuit is not very high. And so the reality is the risk for a lawsuit is essentially always there. It's whether or not a plaintiff's attorney has turned their attention to you. So for a bigger company, bigger companies tend to get more litigation because people have heard about them more. People are aware about them. But the FCRA, there's other state and you know related laws about how you gather consent and how you evaluate your background check, a lot of those laws give individuals the right to sue you if you don't go through that process correctly, the FCRA included. And so, and that is an area that 
not all laws give individuals the right to sue you. This law, because the FCRA is a consumer protection statute, it's about protecting consumers and protecting their information. It gives individual consumers, the, the candidates that the reports are about, the right to sue a company if you are ordering checks on them without gather, gathering proper consent or disclosure, providing disclosures, if you're not give, giving them the adverse action process that they're entitled to. So that risk is, is always there. The... Um, quick, quick, quick interrupt, Suhan. Can you, uh, again, this, you might not be had this at the top of your head, but where, do you th where has been historically the, the, the largest number of litigation cases? Is it, is it the lack of consent on doing the check? Is it the lack of the adversarial policy? Um, where where do we see sort of okay, you know, companies are really exposed this area because the the candidates are, are aware um, that they had their rights to be breached. Yeah, it goes through a little bit of phases. I would say in maybe five ish ten years ago, there was a lot of litigation around the disclosures that were being given, and so under the FCRA, there's a requirement that you give a clear and conspicuous standalone disclosure to the candidate that you're ordering a background check on them. And what clear and conspicuous meant went through a lot of interpretation. And what it ultimately came out with after a lot of litigation is when you tell a candidate, the disclosure tells a candidate that you're going to order a check and that you're going to use it for employment purposes. A lot of litigation happened. People were trying to figure out what these consents were supposed to, the disclosures were supposed to look like. And the outcome is, you know, it has to, it can't contain anything else substantive. You can't put it in small, tiny font. You can't bury it as part of the other job application. It has to be a standalone document. And that came out of a lot of litigation where people were not sure what this clear and conspicuous meant and putting it as part of other documents, mixing other language in, putting in waivers and other things like that. And the court said, no, this has to be clear. It has to be understandable. You can't make a candidate waive other rights just because you're giving disclosure. It has to be this by itself. And so that was a pretty hot area of litigation for a while. It's now that it's settled into what the courts expect it to look like, that's calmed it down a bit. And so it kind of ebbs and flows depending on what the courts seem to be doing, how how active the courts are. And sometimes it can be impacted by, you know, what regulators are paying attention to. You know, any, anybody who's ever clicked like uh, sort of any app terms and conditions or, or any cookie consent banner will be very familiar of, you know, things that are just inserted in that clause, you know, 99.83 or something, but you're, you're saying that can't happen with, it needs to be a, an isolated communication to say, we're going to do this and it can't be buried into a, uh, a huge document, which obviously no one's going to read. Um, so, so, so that's, a, that's an interesting one. You, you mentioned ebbs and flows though. So are you, are you starting to see a pattern that, okay, maybe that's peaked in terms of the candidate awareness. Um, and now they're moving to a different sort of component of where companies might fall out of compliance or, or, or has, has the rest generally stayed fairly flatlined in terms of, you know, anything spiking up or down? Yeah, my, I think on the disclosures area, it's calm down, not because of lack of awareness by candidates, but simply because there's finally pretty clear guidelines for companies to follow, right? The challenge with a lot of these laws is they're written and everyone is trying to interpret it in the way that they think makes sense or is compliant or because of how the U.S. is set up, you know, for in some instances, depending on what court circuit you lived in, there'd be slightly different requirements for what it meant to be compliant. And so for the disclosures, a lot of the shakeup was because everyone was uncertain about what it meant. And now that people have a better understanding of what it means, then there's less litigation because it's easier for people to be compliant now that there's clear guidelines. So with a lot of other areas, if it's not as clear, then there can be more confusion about how to apply it. You know, adverse action is fairly clear. You have to send them this information. You have to let them know. Um, and if you aren't following those processes, that is certainly something that companies can or candidates can do to go after you. I, I think really the concern right now is making sure that you, if particularly if you're in a state with a very active regulatory agency, that you are following the, the state or federal laws there. Because I think as ban the box grows, as people become more 
aware of the impact this can have on people and their livelihoods and them understanding you know what is going on in the process of trying to you know find employment to make a living that companies that are not complying may get attention from regulators who want to enforce these and make sure that you are following the proper procedure so california recently I believe it just in december um is bringing an, a, a suit against a grocery chain out here related to kind of allegations that the way they that their applications weren't necessarily complying with california's rules of how you're asking for information or how you're using it and so it's it's really you have to watch out for what people are, are paying attention to what people care about and i certainly think that right now people are caring more about how this is impacting others yeah and by the way um the, the i mean I, I read this stat on the internet so maybe this uh, i may have even misremembered mis this johan so please do correct me if i'm wrong um but there was actually quite a large number of u.s citizens that have have a criminal record um was it i mean i forget the number was it as, as large as like one in three or is that crazy i mean is, is it one in a ten can someone confirm <laughs> like what that one, number one is? in ten is far too low it's either one in three or one in four depending on how how you're looking at the stats um and whether or not you're including just arrests or just contact with police but it is a very high number in in the u.s and earlier you mentioned that some companies think it's you know this isn't a huge deal they're only paying attention to litigation and it's true, litigation, regulatory risk is a component of what happens if you don't comply. But I would encourage people to remember that we are all job candidates. We are all job candidates ourselves at one point. We will all be job candidates at some point in the future, um, unless you are self-employed. Um, and so that means like, if I'm in the job process, I, I want to understand and be treated in a way that where I'm getting the rights that I'm afforded or that the process is as I expect. And I, I think it's important to remember that when you're on the hiring side, that you are dealing with people and that you are that person sometimes and will be again. And so it's it can be complicated to follow the procedure. And I don't think you necessarily have to, but I think viewing litigation as the only reason you might care about complying, you know, is a little short-sighted and forgets about the human component of the hiring process. No, I, I don't think I can. I don't think anybody would disagree with that at all. I think it's hugely important. Um, you know, employers uh, not only have a social responsibility, um, but I think we also recognize that you know anybody can fall foul of the law. It's not something that you know. Uh, this is not about uh, making an ethical decision per se. Um, you can make a mistake. Uh, you can simply not be aware of something. It, you could have. It could have just happened by a very circumstance. And we need to find a way back. We can't just have, put the mark of Cain on someone um, uh, for vast majority uh, of, of of some of these episodes. Um, and uh, you know, uh, uh, create a situation where they can't contribute back to society. I think that's a terrible mistake. Um, so, so yeah, I think we're all on board with that. Uh, folks, we're running really short on time. So if you have any questions for Suhan, please do make sure you can ask it on, ask uh, on the question function, by the way, I just pop it into the chat and we'll make sure we do some of those. Uh, but we need to move on also now to what companies should do. So they've heard all of this story. They're going to read the report. Uh, they're going to be, oh my goodness, I'm probably one of those uh, that either fall out of compliance or certainly don't feel confident. About. Uh, the interesting actually to interview the ones that do feel confident about it. Are, are, these, are these people crazy? Um, like, I mean, are, are they falsely confident, for instance? Like, you just don't know, right? Um, but, but what would you say as someone who, you know, so let's say someone emails you after this show and say, look, Suhan, we're in trouble here. Like, how do, give, me, give, me, give me like a one, two, three as, as where I need to go to at least directionally go in the right, uh, right uh, position here. Yeah, it's one, it's always good to make a self-assessment of where you stand, where your company is operating, what you're currently doing. You know, maybe you have a background check policy, but you haven't looked at it in a really long time. It's probably a good idea to dust it up and see what's going on with it. Okay, if step you, number one. Let me let me answer real quick. So that's a very quick audit, folks. Like you don't need to do a big thing. Just think: when is the last time you reviewed your background checking policy? Like, actually, step one is like: do you even have a background checking policy? So yes, and that's a yes, no. You can you can know that tomorrow. Um, so if you don't, you probably need to figure this out ASAP. Now, if you do, and you're it's like two, three years old, even a year old, and you don't have even a system of uh, like um, regularly reviewing it. 
already you start to expose a thing that you need to be caring about. So one, two. Uh, okay, sorry, yeah, Sian, I interrupted. Absolutely. And and two, if you don't have a policy, it's it it is because of how complex right? Everything we've talked about, there's a lot of different steps, different stages and different laws that come into play. This is an area where it is really good to have a policy. Now, sometimes companies bristle when they hear the words create a policy because they think it has to be this beautiful 20 page document, but that's not the case. Even having a high level outline that just flags the different stages, the frameworks, that will go a really long way to making sure that you're not making ad hoc decisions, that all the knowledge about your company's approach isn't living in one person's head. And if they leave the company, you've lost that knowledge. It's It doesn't have to be long. It can be high level, it can be an outline, but putting in some time up front to create this background check policy will create really important long-term efficiencies. It will help you scale. It will help with your business continuity, and it will help your to train your team in the future, right? If you have to have someone sits down and tries to brain dump everything they know, that's not efficient if you're trying to grow and hire. If you have a policy, even a high level one to help guide them, that'll give someone the tools to understand, you know, where, where am I coming from? So there's okay. a couple statements. Oh, go ahead. No, no. So, so straight away, I know what people, I, I always like to take the position of, you know, the, 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 the lazy HR person. Um, people can say, okay, great. That's, that's amazing. So is there a template? Can you, can you give me, can you give me something like that? I know you're not going to like it because every company is going to be different, but is there mm -hmm. generally like a standard standardized document that would work in most cases as, as a, as a something to start rather than just from clean, from a blank slate? Yeah, there's a, I think Decker issues a lot of like educational information or trainings about, you know, tips for how to put together a background check policy. So I think there are, oh. there are guidelines out there. I think in terms of a, a specific template, I don't have one off the top of my head, but there's simply a couple areas to just be aware of, right? First is the, the timing of when you're ordering. You can make the decision now, if you want to always wait until you have a conditional offer before ordering a background check, that will likely address a lot of the ban the box laws. But if you don't, if you have no idea when you're ordering a check, you th think about that. Are you, do you still have the box on your application? You probably should take that off. You know, just start with asking like, when in the stage are we choosing to do this? The, ne the next, you know, bullet point number two is, am I giving disclosures and authorizations? You know, do you have any idea or are you just ordering them? Um, there are, if you work with background check providers that will help streamline this process, it can make it easier, right? So some background check companies will provide your disclosure and authorizations to the candidates so that you don't have to manually do it yourself. So there are providers you can work with to make this process a lot faster, but you need to even ask yourself, like, do we, are we giving these? Are we working with a provider and giving them our disclosures and authorizations so that they can pass it on to the candidates. So that's the second one. So this is two steps. I know there's sub steps in each step, but still two. The third one is, you know, how are you looking at the reports? Are you automatically rejecting everyone if they have a criminal record? If that's the case, you probably should spend a little time on how you're evaluating background checks. The the EEOC in, in the US, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission uh, prohibits discrimination in the hiring context. And when it comes to background checks, they a blanket policy against hiring someone with a criminal record could be a discriminatory behavior, could have a disparate or disproportionate impact on impacted classes. And that could lead you, increase the risk that you get a EEOC enforcement action for discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, right? So if, if your policy right now is that if you have a record, you're not hired, really, really recommend consulting with someone and updating that. So that's that's number three. It's just how are you looking at this? What records matter? Giving a few points to your team about these are the type of records that matter to our, our positions will go a long way so that when they're looking at a report, they, they're not just sitting there being like, I don't know what to do with this, right? Give them a few high-level points. Tell them what the company cares about. And the fourth is finally... How are you communicating your decision to the candidate? If you're not giving them any notice, make sure that you are building that process in or working with a provider that helps streamline that process for you so that you can make sure you are delivering 
the, the statutorily required documents. So those are four points. Those are kind of breaking it down to the most simple one. It's when um, disclosure authorizations, how you're reviewing it, and how do you communicate the decision. Lots of background check providers, you know, checker for one, obviously, um, provide tools and services to help our customers um, streamline this process so they can scale and hire and maintain their compliance in a way that reduces the manual work you have to do. And so there's your background check policy. It's four bullet points, maybe two or three sub bullet points under each, but it's it's it will go a long way to have something that documents what you have to think about instead of trying to remember every single time on your own. Yeah, people should timestamp sort of, what is it, 55 minutes in and that like 30 second segment is probably the highest value component of our com entire conversation. Um, because I think that just gives people just something, um, particularly if they're either encountering this for the first time or it's been one of those topics that's kind of on a to-do list that never gets done, um, then then that segment is super, super valuable. Um, let's talk a little bit about Checker before we can, kind of finish off. Some people might be thinking, okay, this is great. Where is the tool? Um, can you give us a quick overview as to, okay, how does Checker help? Because presumably there's a reason why you guys emerged as such a significant company is because this is a critical problem. And in fact, the manual, uh, sort of a manual process doesn't necessarily uh, support scaling of, of, of background checks across a large business. Um, how can Checker help apart from, you know, giving some of this, uh, automating some of this process? How, how does that exactly work? Yeah, so for Checker, we're, you know, we've been a technology first company to make this more efficient. And we're also, a, our mission is to promote and encourage fan trans hiring, which is giving, taking a more thoughtful view of conviction history. So all of this meshes really well together with everything we've talked about today. Um, so on the disclosure and consent part, we offer a application flow so that candidates can give us the PII directly instead of giving it to the customer who then transmits it to us. As part of that flow, we can show the candidate your disclosure and authorization forms. Um, we offer template versions for our customers that they can use as a starting point. Um, you can customize it, edit it, do what you need to do with it in consultation with their legal counsel, of course. And you know, once you get back to us, then each of your candidates, when they go through our flow, will see the disclosure, they'll see the consent, and we will, you know, that flow is managed through our platform instead of somebody in an office having to manually email and make a copy and save those for each candidate. So that's from the front end, the collection, the disclosure and consent portion, we can streamline that process. On the adverse action process, we have a tool in our, in our customer dashboard where you can initiate an adverse action. Let's say you've looked at a report, there's a record that may disqualify someone, you hit a button essentially that says, you know, start the adverse action process. Through our tool, you can identify which record is the one that is of concern. You can also provide us your adverse action templates and we will send that to the candidates for you. So again, you don't have to do it on your own. You don't have to download individual PDFs. It could all be done through our systems. I mentioned a waiting period that's as part of the adverse action and you can set that waiting period automatically in our system so that your team doesn't have to keep a calendar of like, oh, it's been five days, I need to go back into it. You can set your waiting period in our system so that if you don't cancel the adverse action because something else has happened in the interim, they've given you more context and you do want to go forward with them. If you haven't canceled the adverse action, then we'll send the final one for you once that waiting period expires. Um, we also have tools that make it easier for you to collect information from a candidate, like we call it candidate stories. So a candidate can submit their evidence of rehabilitation, give you context about the conviction, you know, and information about themselves that you know goes beyond the background check. So that's really what's part of individualized assessment is like going beyond that specific record, hearing what else the candidate has to say. And so we have the tool that you know empowers a candidate to share that information and makes it a lot easier for our customers to to review it and organize it and collect it. Yeah, I really love the candidate stories, um, uh, nomenclature. I think it's really important to contextualize the human being in all of these activities. Um, uh, you know, someone stealing something, well, what's the context of that? What? Why did that happen? These are all the important components, which actually, unfortunately, um, is, is, is underweighted, I think, when we actually make legal decisions. Um, uh, so super, super important. Okay, so we've got to come to the end of the show, folks, but I think there's three th things I'm taking away from this. Firstly, 
this is the law and i know you mentioned there's an ethical component to it but seriously compliance does drive behavior so if you're not dealing with this you better deal with it because you're not going to really have a choice it's actually part of your job or function to to to, to make sure that your company is compliant um secondly from an operational efficiency point of view you've got a choice to either make it hard or difficult hard or easy in my view um you could over, over overload yourself with a hugely burdensome task or you could use a tool um, which could help you uh, really accelerate the process and reduce the amount of work and effort required uh, by your team. And the third aspect we haven't talked about, but think about candidate experience. Um, a candidate goes through the flow, they're going to have to, it's never pleasant whether you have a record or not, it's never pleasant to have to, you know, start volunteering uh, this degree of scrutiny or whatnot. Um, having some sort of unified way of going through the process like a tool uh, like Checker, I think could be uh, a significant um, a bonus to your candidate journey and how you experience interacting with that org organization. Um, okay, Suhan, we are coming to the end of this show. Um, I'm not going to ask people to get in touch with you because you're obviously you're not customer service checkers. So don't do that. Check out checker.com. All the information is there. But Suhan, you've been wonderful as a, a guest. I could speak to you for a long time on this topic. Um, and I know, by the way, you know, you're not a salesperson. You're not an um, sort of a, a, a front office person at all for the business, but you, you did a wonderful job of explaining uh, the context and also the, 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 the service that you offer. So do check out um, checker.com. Feel free to connect with Suhan, but please don't bother her with these types of questions. <laughs> There's resources available. Um, okay, folks, we're coming to the end of this. Uh, thank you so much for watching. This recording will be available and will be dispatched to all of you who couldn't make it. Um, uh, thanks for watching, everybody. We'll be back next time. I think we're back on Friday. Um, uh, 2 p.m. What are we talking about? I think we've got another market report, folks. Um, uh, this time in the agency play in the UK in the tech side. So make sure you check that out. Uh, we'll be back normal programming time, 2 p.m. UK time. Um, okay, thanks for watching, everybody. Let me end the broadcast. <laughs>